Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Melissa Barkley, I'm still with Carol Kane saying you used to get in the trunk of cars to sneak in the drive. <laughs> That's I, still bouncing around I, your well, head. Well, it is. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, it, 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 yeah. admittedly, it's been a long time since I've been on that kind of dating scene, but I'm just trying to picture yeah. when I was in high school to say, hey, we're going to want to go to a movie, and here, I'm going to put you in the trunk to sneak in. <laughs> Clearly, it was a long time ago, and then I was saying to you, well, nobody, you know, hitchhikes anymore no, either. No, people don't so, hitchhike. That was a common, yeah. well, it, it's just. I don't know. I mean, you don't hitchhike <laughs> it because it's dangerous. Yeah. No, no, you don't mm-hmm. hitchhike because there's the potential of danger and stuff. It's just I'm trying to imagine taking a <laughs> taking a young woman out for for a date. You know, and it doesn't matter how long. First date, third date, you know, whatever. I've been dating for six months. I'm just trying to picture. Hey, hun. Um, here, here's the deal. We're gonna go see this triple feature, the drive-in movie. Get in the trunk so we can sneak and out. watch the beer. Yeah, and, and watch the beer. <laughs> yeah. I'm just. I, I guess. Anyways, I mean, I grew up on the North Shore of Milwaukee. Maybe it is different in Beloit and stuff. Maybe that's the kind of thing. I'm I'm just trying to picture the different gals that I was dating. And if I, if, and then they tell their father, oh, how did it go? It's great, except he asked me to get in the trunk. (laughs) It's it's it. Hey, you announced this Friday. I I I didn't want, um, you are, I'm very sorry. You are, you are departing. Your last day is uh, on Friday. Coming up on Friday. Yeah. All week long, we'll be kind of celebrating, I guess, my five years that I've been here and all the features that I've done. But I had a great opportunity to go over to Marquette University. And I know you're really fond of Marquette as well, but um, senior communication specialist will be my new position there. And um, they offer just a wonderful package and I, I couldn't say no it was so so great so mm-hmm. I'm excited for that new transition but you know I couldn't have gotten there without WTMJ so big shout out big thank you to WTMJ for that um for that send-off well and, we will and, all uh, miss you thank you, <laughs> you, know, you know, and I will miss being on your show and, too well absolutely yeah. I, I think if, if people you know get the sense about how much we like each other it's it's, it's it is genuine legitimate. it's yeah. so <laughs> yeah. genuine I will definitely miss you Jeff and I miss like all our little conversations we have off the air and on the air after the news right. those were some of my favorites right the, you know and, and it, it just I, I always feel like I should apologize because like the first year and a half that you were here for some reason yeah. I had this like for some reason I, I kept calling you Elizabeth Elizabeth Berkeley uh, no Barkley <laughs> Elizabeth but yeah. I, I think I yeah. clearly I had showgirls in mind or something I don't, I don't know, know. Yeah. but it was like okay here you know here's Elizabeth Barkley and it's like oh that's Melissa don't you know? worry Steve a few weeks ago this was before we moved he called me Melissa Spalding so, <laughs> well, <laughs> so I don't know well, well I would never confuse you and Mike Spalding well, good. Okay, there's, yeah. there's no doubt about there's it the but, hair, but yeah. I, I will we'll have um I, I'm off Thursday and Friday so I'm not oh, going to be here are. for your last okay. day but uh, we're going to Las Vegas so you know we're, oh we're going to take Really? That sounds fun. Oh, yeah. Well, no. I hope it, I hope <laughs> like, it no, is. That yeah. sounds really fun. Yeah, just for a couple of days and stuff, but um, we'll have a chance to talk. But I just wanted Absolutely. to publicly acknowledge how much Thank we're going you. to miss you. I'm going to miss you, you personally. I'm going to miss you, too. All yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let me just address the question that I got wherever I was this weekend, and I really do appreciate the interest. Um, as a matter of fact, a number of texts are coming in here about, you know, how, how did your place in Florida do? We, um, we have, Fran and I have for the last couple of years, we, we have a... We're, we're in a big neighborhood. We're in Lee County, which is where the, the hurricane made landfall. Our place is right between Fort Myers and Naples. Um, 
And I, I live in a big community. Oh, we have a place in a big community that has high-rise condos, and it has single-family homes, and then it has various-sized condos and stuff. The neighborhood I'm in, we're, we're in a like a three-bedroom, three-bathroom condo. Um, the, the whole area where we were, just like the whole area, we're about a mile off the coast <clears throat> off from the Gulf, and the... the there, there was extensive flooding, of course, in in our 65 neighborhood area, and our neighborhood had had flooding miraculously. And I say this, I feel very, very blessed. Um, our unit did not have any water in it. It's first floor unit, no water at all in it. And and I think that was pretty much true of most of our neighbors. There was um, water in in pretty much everybody's garage. Our garage uh, had a few inches of water, but not enough to get into the the vehicles that were in there. So we are very fortunate. And I think as far as I can tell, I hired some guy to like power wash the stuff out yesterday. And I, I think that's the extent of the damage. No, no power yet, which is a, a source of frustration down there. But they're, they're anticipating that I know in some of the neighborhoods, like I say, there's 65 neighborhoods in the community I live in. I saw a note today about about a dozen of them have power. So I'm, we're hoping that that'll be sooner rather than later. But I, I just we're going to we're planning on going down uh, mid-November because I, I just the, the scope of the devastation sounds just incredible. I was talking to our, our home watch people and, and what what they have down in Florida is since there's so many people that are are you know, our second homes, what they do is there's there's services and sometimes it's retired guys and sometimes it's services. And what they do is they go out and they, they go into your house, your condo, whatever, once a week, once every two weeks, once a month, however you have it set up. And they just make sure that everything is okay, that pipes haven't burst. And <clears throat> in our case, they go in and they the water's always turned off and they turn the water back on and they run the water and they flush the toilets and they make sure the air conditioning is working and they make sure that the refrigerator is working and things like that. So I, I spoke to um, the, the gal who, who is in charge of our home watch service. She had called me on, on Saturday just to kind of give me an update as to that they'd been in the house on Friday and found that there was no water and stuff like that. And, and after she's given me the report on my place, I said, Becky, I'm just curious, how are you doing? And she almost broke into tears. She said, Jeff, you just can't imagine the, the scope of the, the devastation that, that, that's down here. And, you know, there, there's no power. She said, I just, she said, I, we, had, I went, we went for three or four days without a shower because even though they had running water, and I think they've lifted the boil advisory, there, there's no, none of the power's on. So you can't have hot water or things like that. And some places have generators, but in general, the generators are powered by gas. And so you, you get a couple gallons, the generator runs for a little bit. But the gas stations, the lines in the, the, where we live, they said they were a couple hours long just, just to get gas. And it's really the, the, the scope of the devastation, I think, along the beach. They're, they're just telling us all these places. So if you've, if you've vacationed in Fort Myers and gone to Fort Myers Beach or Bonita Beach, beach or, or Naples, it's, it, it's, just, it's just gone. Everything along the, the beach is gone. We have some friends that live in a couple of the high-rises kind of right on the water in uh, Naples, and, and they're telling them, just don't 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 bother coming down for just not not at least for a month because there's just <laughs> it, it's just that you you can't get in some of the roads are washed out so we are feeling very very fortunate and I mean all along my attitude was well it, even in the worst case scenario it, it's just it, it's proper it's stuff you know and and you see these stories about these people who've lost their livelihoods and these you know the, the death toll is what in the seventies or eighties and you just you just appreciate the, the scope of the devastation. And so we, um, for everybody that's been asking me over the last several days, we, we came through it. At, 
we, we came through it very well. We, Fran and I consider ourselves to be very blessed um, that, that there wasn't widespread destruction, and our heart really goes out to the people down there, which brings me to where I want to start the show, a, a comment by the Vice President of the United States that, that to me, is one of the most incredibly tone-deaf comments that I have ever heard from a a person who occupies high office. And that, by the way, includes the four years of Donald Trump. I will share that comment with you, and we will discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. I have a link to th- this story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. As we were talking about before, I-, I feel very blessed, and that is the word that you know we, our, our place in the-, the Lee County, which is was the heart of the, the storm. You know, we we were very very lucky. Um, it appears, but I mean, there's a lot of people down there that weren't. And you look at just the incredible damage that was caused, and you look at all the people that have lost their lives people that have lost their homes, people who have lost their businesses, people who worked you know, for their entire life at certain businesses, and, and those are gone. And the question is whether how long it's going to take to rebuild if some of that stuff is going to be rebuilt. And you're still dealing with a situation now where you're trying to clean up from the, the damage that the hurricane caused. I mean, it's a true natural disaster on so many levels, and people are dealing without power, and it, it's just a broad spread, widespread devastating impact, not unlike, you know, that's happened in previous hurricanes, not unlike what happens, you know, when tornado season rolls around here. And and when it comes to natural disasters, they they really are an equal opportunity purveyor of destruction, right? So into this wanders the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, who's um, giving uh, the, uh, she's on Friday. Now, this is two days after the the hurricane hit, and she's at a at a conference where she's answering questions, um, it's the Na- Democratic National Committee Women's Leadership Forum. Okay, so these are these are Democratic women who are high up in the, the in their various state parties. So the the question comes up about okay, let, let's talk about you know hurricane relief and things like that. And she tells the audience, this is the Vice President of the United States, that communities of color would be the first in line for relief in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. She says, we have to address this, and she's talking about the damage from the hurricane, in a way that is about giving resources based on equity, understanding that we fight for equality, but we also need to fight for equity. If we want people to be in an equal place, sometime we need to take into account those disparities and do that work. So, again, she's talking about communities of color, and and we want to prioritize the relief in an effort to try to help out communities of color. And, And I remember when I first saw this, I thought, What is this woman talking about? Because as far as I can tell, you know, you have widespread devastation and it hit 
predominantly white communities, and I'm sure it hits some predominantly black communities, and it probably hit communities where there's a high Hispanic population, but but everybody is in this same awful stew uh, of disaster. And for the vice president of the United States to say that I think we want to prioritize our hurricane relief based on communities of color because it's all about equality, uh, my response was, Wait a second. It's all about helping people. And the last time I checked, federal disaster relief wasn't predicated on, gee, what we're going to do is look at the racial makeup of a particular community in deciding how we're going to get relief out. Last time I checked, it was, hey, everybody that's affected, we're going to try to get them as much help as we possibly can as soon as we possibly can. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I just... And, you know, she said this, and now she's being pushed on this, and and she won't offer any more comments about it, because people are saying, what are you talking about? Now, of course, you know, Ron DeSantis, he's the governor of Florida, he's out there saying, well, wait a second, you know, hurricane relief and FEMA, this isn't based on equality, it's based on need, which is how it's always um, said. I mean, you see, real people— just don't talk like this. Real people don't say, hey, okay, you know, Fort Myers, you just got devastated. Fort Myers Beach is essentially gone, but but you're going to have to stand in line for hurricane relief because we might find uh, a community of color that also needs it. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, you know, uh, FEMA is actually out there saying, look, here, here's part of our problem as well, that this is causing panic and has to be clarified because the rules are that FEMA individual assistance is available to all Floridians impacted by Hurricane Ian, regardless of race. 855-616-1620. That's not what the vice president said, though. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. On Friday, when asked about hurricane relief, I'm not making this up, the Vice President of the United States says federal relief should be given on, based on equity. It is our lowest income communities and our communities of color that are most impacted by the extreme conditions and impacted by issues that are not of their own making. So she's saying we want to prioritize hurricane relief based on communities of color. Tell that to the people in Fort Myers or Bonita Bay or Naples or all up and down the coast that got absolutely devastated that they're going to have to stand in line for federal relief because they're not the right race. And that's what she's seriously saying. Let's start with Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, from what I've seen, um, you know, on the news, it's everywhere is decimated. Yeah. So I think, you know, feet going to go, if there's a bridge out or a road out, they're going to go wherever they can hit first, whether it be whatever community, black, white, Spanish, whatever. Which is how it should be. Wherever they can get to. Exactly. Right. And, you know, they're not going to be able to get to you know, certain communities, like I said, where the bridge is out. Okay, so they're going to go to another community where maybe, you know, it's just flooding or, you know, maybe it's just more, um, you know, easy access roads by boat. I mean, it doesn't, it's not a slam against any community or any race. It's they have to do their job and they have to get to people, whoever they are, with water, food, clothing, or 
Right, right, you know, exactly. Uh, I mean, how, how do you turn it, power on? I mean, the, the, the electric companies, they have, they have a process that they go through to figure out, okay, how can we restore power? And if you can get power back to 50,000 people, okay, you do that before you go to some of these rural areas. You, you don't say, okay, let's try to decide, let's look at the, the color of the person or the community. It's just let's get the relief that everybody needs because everybody needs it. Absolutely. And you may not be able to go to the farthest end sure. of the earth of whatever community. You may have to start sure. in the middle or to the side or, or whatever. I mean, it's, it's just so ridiculous that, you know, help is help wherever it goes. Well, exactly. And everybody no. needs help there. Right. Th- thanks for calling. And, and that's it. And you're exactly right. You, you prioritize relief. OK, if you've seen that, there, there's a bridge that goes over to San, over Sanibel Island. Right. That, and, and Sanibel Island tends to be I mean, there's people of all different income levels that live there, but it tends to be a more wealthier enclave. OK, so what are we going to say? We're not going to rebuild that bridge. That's not going to be a priority. We're going to stick 7000 people unable to get to their homes and unable to get back and forth other than like by this ferry boat or something like that. No, you, you prioritize it based on need. You get food, you get water, you get the power turned on, you do whatever you can as quickly as you can, and you don't sit and say, okay, we're going to try to figure out, you know, what the equality is about this. And I guess the staggering thing is you have the vice president of the United States who thinks that that's not how it should be. Wow. People are asking me if I was going to weigh in on the firing of the Wisconsin football coach. I, I think I'll defer to my teammates over at ESPN 94.5. The, I, I guess I, I here, here I wasn't surprised by this. I, I always I always hate the, the practice of, of firing, whether it's a manager or a coach in, in midseason, um, because it always seems to me that that's kind of a, a desperation sort of move. It, it, Paul Christ, who was an, a, what, a UW graduate, who actually had an extremely successful run at, for, at UW. I mean, it's, he won a lot more games than he lost. And it, it, keep in mind, I mean, I, I am old enough to remember when, you know, the, the UW football team wasn't good at, at all. And, you know, during Christ's tenure, um, let's see, they had been 52 and 16 during his first five seasons as head coach, appearing in three conference title games, qualifying for three New Year's um, bowls, bowl games. Since the beginning of 2020, he's 15 and 10, including nine and eight in the Big Ten. So I, I think the sense is you have a a program that is in decline or is just kind of leveled out and things like that. And, and I get it. It's just I, I obviously. The athletic director, obviously also probably in consultation with some of the big supporters, had decided that that Paul Christ is in the future. They didn't like not just the the bad start this year, but they didn't like the long-term direction of the program over the last couple of years, and they decided that they were going to make a move. And I think their their hope is that that Jim Leonard, the assistant coach who they elevated to be the interim head coach, that that he's going to check all the boxes and that he'll be the, the permanent candidate, which I guess raises the questions of, okay, does that foreclose going out and doing a national search? But I the bottom line was, I don't think it was just because of the the bad start that they had this year. I think it's just expectations are high for the UW football team. Um, there's been frustrations over some of the recruiting. And again, looking over not just this season, but the last few seasons, I think people came to the conclusion that the program wasn't moving in the right direction. And um, they decided to make the move. And 
I know that there's a lot of people out there who just live and, and die by UW football, and I, I know that a lot of people were perhaps shocked by this. I, I just, it's, I guess I look at this and think, you, you hate to see this happen in the middle of the year, but I, I think this was inevitable. I think it was going to happen at the end of the year, so they figure, well, we might as well you know, just kind of get on with this. So I want to wish the UW football team well. And, and as, as far as you know, Coach Christ goes, I, he, he, had, he had a really good run. And he, I think he did a very, very good job of maintaining the standards that the program accepts. And you've had a couple tough years, and that is unfortunate, whether it's baseball managers or football coaches or basketball coaches or whatever. The truth is they are, what's the old cliche, they are hired to be fired. And that, that inevitably happens. There's maybe a little bit more job security in some college positions, but it's a tough business, just a tough business. Okay, I want to go back to one more conversation about the hurricane, because I, I I picked up the, sun, the Saturday edition of the New York Times, and there was the this huge story. Um, the headline was "Facing a Dire Storm Forecast in Florida, Officials Delayed Evacuation." And it, it goes on to it, it starts out as kind of a rip on Governor Ron DeSantis, who is one of the leading Republican candidates, assuming he is reelected, which he will be in Florida this November, one of the leading candidates for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. So, you know, anytime you get a chance to take a dig at DeSantis, some people to take a dig at DeSantis. The local communities, the various counties, they all have emergency protocols in place for hurricane evacuations, right? They, they do. And it's the local communities that make the call. Lee County, which happens to be the county where we own a place, but but Lee County is essentially the area. It's north of Naples, and it's it encompasses Fort Myers. Lee County is where the hurricane hit full extent. All right, Collier County is where Naples Naples is. That's the one immediately to the south. Trust me, I was watching all the, these hurricane forecasts, and you never know where the hurricane's going to hit for sure up until. Really, kind of the last minute, the forecasts were, remember, that the hurricane was going to go up and it was going to hit Tampa. And people were talking about if that happened, just absolutely just devastation. And Tampa hadn't had a direct hit in the longest period of time. So all along the Gulf, uh, the different communities, were mo- the different counties were monitoring the track of the hurricane. And they were issuing evacuation warnings. Now, Lee County which is where the hurricane, again, ended up hitting, they, um, they did not issue an evacuation, a mandatory evacuation order until 12 hours or you know maybe even 24 hours after a number of the other communities up and down the coast had issued their evacuation order. And, and with the Lee County, they, they issued an order 24-plus hours before the hurricane hit. But they did it on Tuesday. They didn't do it on Monday. Okay, that, that's it. So the issue is, oh, my gosh, you should have issued this earlier. And, and Ron DeSantis says, look, I'm not going to criticize local officials for making these decisions. This is always, you know, we've got these protocols. You get the storm tracks. You watch where the storm is going. Everybody thought that this hurricane was going to hit further up the coast. And so the officials at Lee County, they, they, they waited till 24 hours or 28 hours or however long it was before it looked like they were going to get really walloped, and then they put the order in. However, I will tell you this. There's nobody who was in Florida on the Gulf Coast who didn't know this hurricane was coming three, four, five days in advance. 
Everybody knew it was coming. You just never know exactly where it's going to hit. So Ron DeSantis is taking all sorts of static and heat for saying, look, I'm not going to criticize the Lee County officials for, you know, they were watching it. They were monitoring it. The predictions were it was going to hit a little bit further north, so they didn't issue the evacuation order. And then he goes on to say, and this is what the Lee County people do as well, look, the, the people, people had enough time to get out. The people that decided to stay just decided to stay. There are people who make the decision. I don't think I would have been one of them, but there are people who just say, okay, we're we're going to ride this out. We know there is a hurricane coming towards us. We know it's going to be potentially bad, but for whatever reasons, we are going to ride it out. In the little neighborhood that I live in, there were two couples who made the decision that they were going to ride it out. Interestingly, they're they're both uh, retired officials with the Coast Guard, at least one of the couples are, but they made a decision that they were going to ride it out for whatever reasons. Now, you never know exactly how bad it's going to be, but people make that decision. I guess my point is, I think it is really unfair, certainly to criticize the governor, but also to criticize local officials um, oh, gee, you know, you, you should have given the warning a little bit earlier. Well, the truth of the matter is people knew a hurricane was coming. There's nobody, I think, on the Gulf Coast of Florida could make the argument that, hey, we, we might not have known where it would hit, but we knew that, you know, people were heading out. You saw that, you know, day after day on the news. The people that decided to stay, I think, would have stayed regardless of whether the officials in that particular county had said, OK, we, we want to put an evacuation order in. We're going to do it on Tuesday instead of Monday. People just made the decision to stay. 855-616-1620. For the people who did stay, is it the fault of the local emergency people that they made that decision, or is it just a decision that they made for whatever reasons? 855-616-1620. Back to discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, sometimes the, the commentary is, especially if it's designed to try to have political overtones, is just so staggeringly stupid that you you almost feel dumber by by talking about this. Okay, so you have this hurricane that that hits the Gulf side of Florida last Wednesday. Most communities up. Everybody knows that there's a hurricane coming, okay? that The hurricane was forecast, gosh, about a week beforehand. So everybody's on this hurricane watch. You never know exactly where the hurricane is going to hit. Most of the hurricane reports had the hurricane going farther up the Gulf, hitting around Tampa, until the very end when it kind of turned and, and hit further south. Devastating sort of impact. The community where it hit, Lee County, which is populous county, it's just north of Naples, so you're thinking about the Fort Myers area, they issued evacuation orders on Tuesday, still a full day before the, the hurricane hit. But but other communities had issued evacuations earlier. The folks at Lee County said, look, everybody knows it's a hurricane. We were tracking this, and all the indicators were it was going to hit further north of us. But everybody knew that there was a hurricane coming. So now that the hurricane hits, they're getting all sorts of static. You should have done this, you know, 48 hours instead of 24 hours beforehand. The governor of the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, says, I'm not going to criticize the local officials. Everybody's doing the best they can. You, there's an unpredictability factor to this. And I'm like, hey, look, the people that made the the decision to ride out the hurricane knew the hurricane was coming 
And everybody, nobody was sure exactly where it was going to hit. You, you never know that. But if you decided that you got a place on Sanibel Island and you wanted to stay, you made that decision. And it doesn't matter whether the evacuation order was issued 72 hours ahead or 42 hours ahead or 24 hours ahead. People decided that they were going to stay. Uh, Jeff, my son attends Eckerd College in St. Petersburg. He was evacuated as they were expecting a direct hit there. That was last Monday. No one knew what the storm was going to do. The criticism is ridiculous. Jeff, I was, uh, Jeff, it was certainly no one's fault. My brother and sister-in-law, who live in Citrus Springs, Florida, were here in Wisconsin visiting. They made the decision to go home in a big hurry when the storm was predicted to go more north. They wanted to be with their daughters and families. They didn't have any damage, but they wanted to be home. Thanks for your show. Well, thanks for the common sense comment. Jeff, the usual suspects, you know, just want to blame DeSantis for everything bad that's happened. Um, Yeah, I, I think... You know, that's the situation. And, I, you know, Mike says in Heartland, if you choose to stay, then you choose to pay. Well, that's that's the bottom line of all this. I mean, people, for whatever reasons, make this decision that they're going to try to ride out the hurricane. And my guess is there's a lot of people who live in Florida who've been through several hurricanes before. And that they make this decision that, well, okay, we're told to evacuate, and then the hurricane misses us, and it's no big deal, and we've already left. So there are people who make these conscious decisions. It's it's one of the things that happens when you try to reason with the hurricane season, to borrow a line from a Jimmy Buffett song. You, you just cannot end up doing that. But the people who made the decision to stay, they made the decision to stay. And it's not as if emergency management people are going to go door-to-door 48 hours before a hurricane hits and and forcibly remove people. That's not the way it, it does it works. What they do is they say, we, you need to evacuate, and then they say, if you do not evacuate, you need to understand that the emergency responders aren't going to be able to come get you, you know, uh, as long as the hurricane's going on or the winds are at this particular level. But it's a decision that people make. Jeff, text, people were told ahead of time. If they decided to stay, you know, that's all on them. Um, Jeff, with all the technology available today, anyone could have monitored it from the Weather Channel or TV or from their own phone. And if the official evacuation order didn't come, they could certainly make the decision on their own. Jeff, one thing I agree with you on, if you live in Florida, you're going to get a hurricane. And I believe that they might be getting bigger and stronger. Well, that's entirely possible again. But this is the risk that you end up taking. But this idea that especially for political reasons, we're going to try to um, that we're going to try to, again, impose uh, we're going to try to blame people because people didn't get out. You know, that that's. That's just, I just don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right. And I I think it distracts from the real problems that are going on there, which is that you had a devastating hurricane that hit and just massive loss of life, billions of dollars, or at least hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars in property damage, and lots of people who just, you know, had homes and had businesses and had places of employment that are gone and may not be coming back at all. But let's try to figure out a way to blame the people in Lee County, or let's try to figure out a way to blame Ron DeSantis because it satisfied some weird political agenda. I don't get it.
That, by the way, is one of my very favorite Jimmy Buffett songs, Trying to Reason with the Hurricane Season. And as somebody who really like launched his career, well, he grew up in Mississippi, but launched his career down in Key West, Florida, knows all about these hurricanes. I guess my, my point about the whole situation was that you know people along the Gulf Coast, people who live in these areas that are subjected to hurricanes, that they, they understand you know that this is something that happens and people have all sorts of different ways of coping with it for me i i want no part of trying to ride out a hurricane i i just don't i i see i mean i've seen the pictures of the devastation of what happened here and like i said earlier i, I feel very very blessed that our place you know sustained almost for all intents and purposes no damage at all where people a half mile further inland from where we were were just absolutely devastated but but it's a decision that people make that they're going to try to ride it out and unfortunately sometimes that turns out to be an extremely bad decision you never know exactly where the hurricane's path is going to be you never know exactly where or when the hurricane is going to make landfall and emergency officials can do the best they can they can say okay this is what we are expecting and we encourage people to to get out of dodge and people do, and other people then make the decision that they're going to ride it out. But it's not the emergency official's fault if people decide to stay. And it's certainly not the governor of the state's fault when he says, well, and it's a decision that, again, when we issue these evacuation orders, it's based on local communities. And when the governor of the state refuses to pile on and blame local officials, it's certainly not his fault. But again, I, I understand we live in this supercharged political world where, you know, somebody has to be bl- to blame for everything. Maybe in some cases we just end up blaming Mother Nature. All right. I, I want to completely switch gears coming up in this at the start of the next hour. Um, and a number of people have been mentioning this point. Donald Trump absolutely outdid himself over the weekend. I will share his comments and then we will discuss. Stick around. That's all coming up after the news. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, this is not... Okay, there's sometimes as a recovering attorney, I, I'm I'm proud of my I, I'm I'm proud of of my predictions when stuff is going to happen and there's outcomes in cases and things like that. Then there's other times when it's just completely predictable. And if you were listening last week, we discussed the, the Daryl Brooks trial that was supposed to start today, or I guess has started today, but not the way anybody intended it, and what a circus it was going to become, and and it has turned out that way. Daryl Brooks is, of course, the guy who, and I will put allegedly in front of these remarks, and then you can just, you know, assume that I'm continuing to say allegedly, because in this country, you are technically, you, you, are, you are innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So I'll say allegedly. But Daryl Brooks is the maniac who drove through the Waukesha Christmas parade, killed six people, and injured dozens and dozens more. He is a psychopath. And um, he has, I think, he thrives on attention. So I will be honest with you. This trial is what we used to call as prosecutors. It's a slow guilty plea. There is no question about Daryl Brooks's guilt. And so it's just a question of, all right, you know, going through the motions and presenting the evidence that you need to do and building the case and prosecuting him. And then he's going to go to prison since in Wisconsin we do not have a death penalty. He's going to go to prison for the rest of his life. That is what's going to happen. But it's how you get from where we are now to that point that becomes the, the difficulty. 
Daryl Brooks was represented by two very, very good lawyers that had been appointed to him at taxpayer expense. You know, they were from the public defender's office. Daryl Brooks decided, I, I think in large part because he wants the attention. He said, I, I, want, I want to fire them. I want to represent myself. And of course, th- this is, I mean, he's, he's not able to represent himself. Now, maybe in a completely legal context, he can. The guy has no legal training. He, but this isn't about like a fair trial or anything like that. This is about a guy who knows what the outcome of this is going to be, who wants all the attention he can possibly get. That's why we did a segment on Friday. I mean, there, there's, the TV cameras are there. I, I think um, Court TV is scheduled to show this once the the trial actually starts, and I would not be guess would not be surprised if you see lots of long form coverage from the local TV stations. It's not that they don't have a right to do it, but my point all along has been, you know, why give this monster the attention that he wants? And and if this isn't televised, you know, maybe just maybe he will, you know, get disappointed and he'll he'll do what he should have done all along, which is accept legal counsel and not act up. But that's that's not where we are right now. So the trial starts today, and it's been just a complete cluster bumble since the start. Here's the way the um, Journal Sentinel reports it, and they've got a reporter that's out there. Um, So what happens is we're at the stage now where you're going to try to pick a jury. And what they have done, because of the attention that this program, that this trial has gotten, what they have done is, starting like in April, they sent out jury questionnaires to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of potential jurors. And and you might say, well, Jeff, how are they ever going to find a, a juror who hasn't heard about this case? Well, that's not the test. They're not looking for somebody who hasn't heard about the case because you'd have to be in a cave in Alaska to have not heard about the case. But what you're looking for is people who, regardless of what they have heard outside the courtroom, feel that they can decide the case based on the evidence that's presented in the in the courtroom. And, and that's, see, that's the key. So they sent out all these jury questionnaires to try to aid the attorneys in screening all the potential jurors. So, and, and it's a process, it's called voir dire, which means to speak the truth in Latin. And um, that, that was supposed to start today. So we're, we're now at the stage where you're going to get the jury selection. But because Brooks is representing himself, he's going to be the one that will pick the, the jurors and and you get the way it works is you can uh, people will come in and the respective sides the prosecution and the defense can move to strike jurors for what they call cause which is the the fact that you feel that this person is going to be biased and you have to make an argument about why that person is biased and then you also get a certain number of what they call peremptory strikes which means that you you don't have to you just you just get to decide I don't think that's going to be a good juror for our case or or whatever so you get to strike them and and there is an art. To this, um, matter of fact, there's people who make a very, very good living as jury consultants going through that. So, anyhow, Brooks is is by himself at, at this table, so he is going to be entitled, believe it or not, to question the jurors, the potential jurors, to determine if they have bias or or whatever. But there are limits on this. So. But that's not what this is all about. Brooks is all about creating as much of a disturbance as he possibly can. So this was what's supposed to happen today. They were supposed to start with the voir dire, bringing the jury panel in. Let's get them in and let's start the process of figuring out who the 12 jurors are going to be and how many alternates we're going to have. Here's the way the newspaper reports it. After repeated disruptions, 
Waukesha County Circuit Judge Jennifer Doro, and she's earning her money, twice removed Brooks from the courtroom. Brooks was removed for a second time after Doro told him he was continuing to be disruptive, something he had been previously warned about. In all, Doro called six breaks in the proceeding between 8.30 and noon, not counting the two instances where Brooks had to be removed. So he's throwing a fit in the courtroom over and over and over again and just stopping the proceedings. Doro told Brooks if the interruptions continued, she would appoint an attorney for him to keep the trial on track. The trial is scheduled to run again beginning today, and it's supposed to run through the end of the month. The process, and again, jury selection hasn't started yet, and I don't think they're they're close to this. They've got 315 jurors who are either in the courthouse or on call to go into the courthouse as this process starts. But you've got a guy who's been completely and, and totally disruptive and who is showing no signs of doing anything other than that. If he continues to disrupt things, one of the things that they could do is they could remove him from the courtroom, and apparently they have another room set up where he could watch the proceedings on closed-circuit TV. Um, how that how it interacts with when you're supposedly representing yourself um, is just different. I mean, here, here's the bottom line of this. Brooks is trying to create as much havoc as he possibly can. Now, at some point in time, as I've said before, the, the problem with this is, besides the just just delays and, again, just the, the general disruption, you, you, want to, you want to be careful to not have to do this again. By, by that, I mean when he is convicted, and he will be convicted. He will have attorneys on appeal who will come in, and I guarantee you, just like night follows day, the argument will be that he was not in a position, he couldn't represent himself, so he got this unfair trial, let's do this all again. That will be the push. And the last thing anybody involved in this, whether it's the judge, the prosecution, or most importantly, the tens or hundreds of witnesses, nobody wants to go through this again. Can you imagine what's going to happen in a week or so when you start to have victims, surviving victims who were injured who testify, or surviving family members of people who were killed by Brooks, if that's the case, maybe people who witnessed their loved one dying? Can you imagine what it's going to be like for them to go through this circus and and, and have and a circus because of what the defendant has done? It's not a criticism of the prosecution at all. But can you imagine? It's going to be traumatic enough for them to have to relive the events of that day in December once, and the idea that three years from now, after Brooks gets convicted, gets sentenced to multiple counts of life in prison without possibility of parole, the fact that somebody somewhere might look at this and say, okay, we're going to have to do it all again because his right to a fair trial was denied, that would just be, it would just be so horrific that you, um, that you, it would just be so horrific that that it would be just absolutely unthinkable as to as to this. So it's a very very difficult decision here, and, and the judge, I I've, I think you know she's walking on eggshells in some respects because you you got to control your courtroom. You cannot allow a defendant to hijack the proceedings. That is precisely what Daryl Brooks is doing. Now I don't I, I think part of it is that he's just kind of psychotic. I think part of it is that he understands. Um, that, that some of the things he might, well, I don't understand this, I don't understand that, you know that's going to find its way into an appellate brief 
later on down the line, a year and a half from now, in an effort to try to get him out from under his convictions and get a new trial. So I, I this it's scheduled to go a month. At the rate that it's going, it's going to go three months. And, I, and, and I'm sure that they're going to figure out ways to pick this up. But this is, it's a trial like none other, or at least I think in Waukesha County, you probably got to go back to 1995, the trial of James Oswald, who was, they were the father and son. He was the father who um, were involved in the bank robbery that that ended up murdering a Waukesha police captain. And and he represented himself. I've actually got a link to a really interesting story that today's TMJ4 had it on that. If you follow me, it's on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. But this is going to be just an an absolute circus. I, I think... At some point in time, my hope is that like the TV stations in particular decide that maybe like wall to wall coverage is not is not in the best interest of the community. And and look, I, I understand it, it makes it just like, you know, the people that go to auto races waiting for, for crashes. It, it's just it, it makes vivid TV to put it on at five o'clock or six o'clock or 10 o'clock at night. You know, here's this Yahoo that, that's acting up again in court and. But the problem is that gives him the attention that he wants. So I'm hoping maybe the TV stations can decide to kind of scale it back a a little bit because, again, the important thing is to remember the victims, remember the surviving family members of those victims who lost their life, and and not give Daryl Brooks what he wants. But as of right now, the the trial is starting out exactly like I think a lot of us thought this trial was going to start out, and that is through no fault of the judge and no fault of the prosecution. It is a cluster bumble. So very glad to have you with us. This is our, uh, I think it's our fifth day in our new studios downtown at the Avenue, and and we're still actually... Every time I come in here, there's more stuff that is done and things like that. And last week, we didn't have a clock, which at least so you have to, like, look at these computer screens. I have multiple computer screens and stuff. But it was always – I was like, huh, that was I was not used to that. Um, so I'm looking at the clock, and I said, oh, they have a clock in here? And Steve Scafidi pointed to this giant clock that is right over where the producer – so, yes, I, I, I now – I just have to train myself to look up at it. But yeah, see, that's it. You say you want a clock and you got this big old clock that's there showing what's going on. A number of people are asking some questions about the Daryl Brooks case. Jeff, what does Brooks get out of taking it to trial? All right. Brooks gets out of jail. I mean, not permanently, but Brooks. All right. I mean, Brooks gets to go to court every day. And I don't think he's there in his orange jumpsuit. I think they have him there in a suit. Brooks gets that. But more importantly, I think Brooks gets this attention that that he wants. I think he, and this is what happens sometimes when you have some of these just hardcore psychotic killers, that they thrive on the the attention. I mean, James Oswald, and I used that example earlier, he was the guy, again, father and son, he was the father. They went on this bank robbery spree and ended up killing a Waukesha police captain. As I recall, Oswald, he he would like smile at the jurors. He'd wink at the late victim, at the victim's wife. You know, those, those are, those are the things. I mean, that's, that's what he gets. He gets his 15 seconds of his 15 minutes of fame. And unfortunately it's going to last for, for quite a while because the, the truth of the matter is once the trial is over, n- nobody cares about Daryl Brooks anymore. 
They, they, they just don't. He will he'll be convicted. He will go to prison. He will spend the rest of his life in prison. So this is his moment to get all sorts of attention. It's his moment to, to stand up. It's his moment to be on court TV or, or whatever. And he thrives on that attention. So, you know, what does he get from taking it to trial? That there, he's got, essentially, he's got nothing to lose. Because let, let's face it, we all know what the outcome of this is going to be. We all know what the sentences are going to be. It's not like in Wisconsin, you have the death penalty. So there's an option between life in prison without parole or the death penalty, he's going to get life in prison without parole. So he literally has nothing to lose. And plus, if this plays to his weird sense of ego or whatever, that, that's fine. Uh, somebody says, and a number of people are saying, Jeff, the media is giving him the attention he wants and they get the headlines they want. Well, I think there's, I think there is an look, th- th- that's why he wants to be on television. And that's why I, I do think it, this is, it is a newsworthy trial. So, I mean, obviously, I think it's naive to expect that there be no coverage of this. I'm just saying that we don't need sensationalized coverage of this. I don't know that there's anything to be gained by wall-to-wall coverage of it. And I think that maybe a lot of the, the TV stations, you know, after after we do this today and you see Brooks acting up and having to be taken out of the courtroom, that, that, that footage, once you've got it, it it's, it's old. And if it happens tomorrow or if it happens Wednesday, you, you don't. You don't need to keep showing that. And the more I think we can downplay this, the better. And I get people saying, well, you're a hypocrite. You're talking about it. Well, I'm talking about it from the perspective of trying to say, I wish none of us would talk about it. We are not. We are not going to go wall to wall with coverage. We have done that in some trials over in the 25 years that I've been here. Well, I guarantee you, um, figuratively speaking, over my dead body, we're not going to do it. There's no plans to do that. That's the kind of thing that gives him what he wants. Now, you know, if there are developments in the trial, will, will we talk about that or will we mention it? Absolutely. But you have to have some degree of perspective on this. And again, th- this is the problem. And it's it's just, I give the judge a lot of credit because I think so far she's done a pretty good job um no doubt about it one of our um one of our listeners says it's crazy enough he could get a tv or a movie deal well i i i guess i mean that that's the i mean there's a there's a thing on netflix now about jeffrey dahmer now he's long gone but yes you you do wonder if there's somebody somewhere who says hey okay Maybe maybe what we want to do is we want to do our revisionist look at what Daryl Brooks did, and we're we're looking at doing a mini series about Daryl Brooks. I mean, after all, we did something like uh, what was it, Making of the Murderer, about Stephen Avery. You know, maybe Daryl Brooks is the next Stephen Avery, and maybe there will be some people who watch him or is fascinated by this. It's just it's a very very difficult situation, and I guess the less attention that he gets particularly in the 6 o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news, I think the better it's going to be. So glad to have you with us. All right. If you are a regular listener to this program, you know, I think, how I feel about former President Trump. I, I think that in some respects he got a raw deal when he came into office, and I think there are many good things that he did while he was in office. Having said that, it's my belief that his conduct in refusing to accept the results of the 2020 election 
um, coupled with all the stuff that happened afterwards and his his handling of the insurrection or riot or whatever you want to call it on January 6th, it re- renders him unsuitable for public office and at least moving forward. And that's and I understand some people don't like to hear that, but that's just kind of how I personally see this. And I guess one of the frustrations I, I have with, with Donald Trump is that I, I firmly believe, given all the, the, the way Joe Biden has mismanaged this country and the economy, if, if Trump would have been able to, I don't know, just ha- have a, just a, a hint of graciousness, for example, after the election results, if he would have been able to just be a little bit gracious about accepting the defeat and, and gone out and campaigned for Republicans in the Senate race in Georgia and things, I, I think— he would have been in a position to essentially walk back into office in 2024, but but he couldn't do that. And his conduct since he's left office has become increasingly, I think, just out. It's been increasingly deranged. And there's just no question about it. And again, we're at a point where there's the midterm elections are coming up in five or six weeks. And this is a time where, like many of the people that Donald Trump supported, for example, in the primary, they, they, they won. So he could be at a point now where he would be taking all this money that he's amassed in his political action committee and spending it to help elect Republican candidates. But that's that's not what he's doing. Now, I don't know how many of you really know, you know, who Elaine Chow is, but but she's a true success story. Um, she she was born in Taiwan, moved to the United States with her family when she was eight years old, arrived in the United States, third grade, not knowing how to speak English. She received her citizenship at the age of, of 19 and went on to be just a, an incredibly accomplished you know, public servant. Um, she ended up um, working in the Bush, at, at the first Bush administration. She was the uh, deputy secretary of transportation. Um, that she held that position from 1989 till 1991. She served a year as the director of the Peace Corps. Um, after she left. After the first President Bush left office, she served from 1992 to 1996 as president and CEO of the United Way. Um, she worked for on various boards and things of the like. Again, extremely, extremely accomplished. When George W. Bush was elected, she served in the cabinet. She was the... Um, she was the only member of the cabinet to serve for the entire Bush term, 2001 through 2009. She served a part of that. She was in charge of the Department of Labor. I think maybe all, all of that. So incredibly, incredibly accomplished. When Donald Trump won election in 2016, he went back to her and wanted her to lead the Transportation Department. So she returned to the White House in 2017, and she— um, served as, as Trump's Secretary of Transportation. So, uh, very, I guess I bring this up because very, very accomplished woman. She's also, um, for the last, well, like 30 years or so, she's been married to Mitch McConnell, who is the, you know, the, the Republican Party, the minority leader. And um, she's married, she's been, they've been married for 30 years, and they're viewed as a significant Washington power couple. She ended up resigning her position at the Department of Transportation in the waning days of, of, the, of the Trump administration after 
I think she became sort of disgusted with the stuff that was going on, including all the stuff going on on January 6th. So that's the background of Elaine Chow. She's a very, very, I think, accomplished woman who I think, you know, has served this country, regardless of politics, has served the country well. All right, so why are we talking about Elaine Chow, Mrs. Mrs. Mitch McConnell? Well, that's because on Friday, Donald Trump decided to go after Mitch McConnell and his wife. Here's uh, the, the tirade that he went on. Um, again, this is, I think it's on, on his Truth Social, you know, social media app. Is McConnell approving all these trillions of dollars worth of Democrat-sponsored bills without even the slightest bit of negotiation because he hates Donald J. Trump and he knows I am strongly opposed to them, or is he doing it because he believes in the fake and highly destructive Green New Deal and is willing to take the country down with him? In any event, either reason is unacceptable. He has a death wish, must immediately seek help, and advise from his China-loving wife, Coco Chow. All right. So, you know, we, 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 we make this, I'm not even going to call it semi-racist. We make this racist attack against uh, Elaine Chow. We then also, he comes out and he calls, again, he takes issue with McConnell, but also then says he has a death wish. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to share with you a, a brief portion of today's Wall Street Journal editorial. Then I want to open up the phone lines and discuss this. Here's what they write. We live in a polarized political age where rabid partisans don't need provocation to resort to violence. This makes Donald Trump's latest verbal assault against Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell all the more reckless. Then it it goes through the tirade against that I just, just read to you. This continues Mr. Trump's attacks on Elaine Chow, Mr. McConnell's wife, for being Chinese American. Her real offense was resigning as transportation secretary after Mr. Trump's disgraceful behavior on January 6th. His feud with Mr. McConnell is also personal, as the Kentucky senator condemned Mr. Trump's January 6th actions and hasn't spoken to him since. But the death wish rhetoric is ugly even by Mr. Trump's standards, and deserves to be condemned. Mr. Trump's apologists claim he merely meant Mr. McConnell has a political death wish, but that isn't what he wrote. It's all too easy to imagine some fanatic taking Mr. Trump seriously and literally and attempting to kill McConnell. Many supporters took Mr. Trump's rhetoric about former Vice President Pence all too seriously on January 6th. Maine Senator Susan Collins wasn't excessive when she said recently that she wouldn't be surprised if a member of Congress is shot in this hothouse political environment. A left-wing follower of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders opened fire on Republican members of Congress in 2017 and came close to killing Representative Steve Scalise. Five weeks from Election Day, Mr. Trump could be working and spending money to elect a GOP Congress or to help his home state of Florida recover from Hurricane Ian. Instead, he's attacking Mr. McConnell and his wife as part of a personal political vendetta and putting every Republican candidate on the spot to respond to questions about the latest Trump rant. Mr. Trump always puts himself first, and with this rhetoric, he may put others at genuine risk of harm. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I agree with every word the Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote this morning. And I guess it's just the sooner Donald Trump goes away, I think the better we will all be. And whenever I say this, I get another note from Trump supporters saying, well, why do you talk about Trump? You know, you should just let this go. 
it's almost impossible to let it go when he's coming out and saying, well, Mitch McConnell has a death wish, and you wonder what some psycho out there might think and how they might interpret it. Then the attacks on, on his wife, who, like I say, is has a distinguished career in public service, is incredibly accomplished, and, and this is what you have. Oh, it's Coco Chow. Give me a break. 855-616-1620. At some point in time, don't, don't we get to the point when it comes to Donald Trump, regardless of how you felt about the Trump administration and his accomplishments or lack of accomplishments, let's talk about the accomplishments. Don't we get to a certain point where we simply say, sir, at long last, have you no sense of decency? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, the ultimate irony of Trump's attacks on Mitch McConnell is during the, the Trump years, McConnell carried lots and lots of water for Donald Trump. And, and I know that there's probably there were things that Mitch McConnell did that he said, OK, well, I'm Donald Trump is a leader of the Republican Party and he's the president. We have to to support him. And I, I also know that. The, the second impeachment effort, the one that occurred after Trump left office, it, it could have been different. I mean, if McConnell had decided that he was going to push for impeachment. Jeff, Trump has been like this for decades, long before he ran for president. I think this demonstrates it's a position he was unfit for. Jeff, I just want Trump gone from our news feeds. But sadly, I know it'll never happen because he craves the limelight. Well, yeah, I, I think I, that's one of the big questions here. It's like, OK, are, is it— now, part of the problem is there. there's some people that just have no filters, and, and Donald Trump has always been like that. There's for, for most of us, you think something, and then there's this like little stop sign that before it leaves the brain and goes down into the mouth, there's this stop sign that, that says, maybe I shouldn't say that. Trust me, I have that, you know? And so you, you, you think about that. Trump has apparently no filter, and, and he's never had a filter, but it's almost like it's getting it, it's getting crazier and crazier out here. Jeff, his detractors have been saying for years that his mouth is too reckless. Leaders' words matter. I'm just shocked that he's now gone this far. This is the same guy that insulted John McCain for being a prisoner of war, for God's sake. Yeah, that was, remember, that thing, that was the, well, you know, John McCain, I don't think he's a hero. Heroes are the guys that don't get shot down. Jeff, I 100% agree with both the Wall Street Journal and yourself. It's way past time for the GOP to condemn Donald Trump and move away from him and his rabid base. I believe Trump is a cancer to the Republican Party. Um, yeah, Jeff, the Republicans can't be the party of personal responsibility if the former president can't be responsible for his own actions and words. Um, I mean, I think there's an, an element of that that's out there. Jeff, if Joe Biden is going to be questioned for his mental capability, which I think is fair, Trump should as well. Statements like this make me think he should be tested for narcotics or for mental illness. Jeff, I love the majority of the policies under the Trump administration, but unfortunately, I despise the person. He has no tact or class. Unfortunately, in today's politics, on both sides of the aisle, politicians feel the need to punch low to get ahead. Donald Trump is a huge offender of this idea, but the more President Joe Biden speaks, the more I lose respect for him as a person as well. True moderates of either party are non-existent, and they have faded into the background. Trump has always... I mean, had this the, this problem of of punching down that this need and and maybe that's 
Maybe that's what happens when you have a megalomaniac and, you know, they're, they're also they come out of the world of New York real estate development where it's just fight, fight, fight. And that's how it, it's let's be offensive and let's go on the offensive and let's never admit they're wrong. And let's, you know, let's I, I call it you know, punching down. I was always amazed during I, I just I always felt bad for Reince, Reince Priebus and I've never talked to him about this. But when he was White House chief of staff, you would it's very, very important for candidates and elected officials to have some degree of, of discipline. Okay, this is the day that we're going to talk about, I don't know, the labor market. This is the day we're going to talk about uh, gains in education or whatever. And so, and what happens is that they script it. They make appearances. This is what we're going to do. You make plans weeks ahead of time. This is going to be the issue. And then what would happen with Trump is at two o'clock in the morning, he'd wake up and he'd get a you know, a, a wild hair up a certain part of his anatomy. And then he starts sending out tweets about some obscure sort of thing, which threw the entire schedule off. And I, I think, you know, there were some people that found that charming. I think for a lot of people, they just found it wearing. But at some point in time, you you, you kind of go, okay, maybe it's just time to look away from the train wreck. And again, going after Mitch McConnell, and, and you can— I mean, Democrats hate Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell has pretty much run the Republican side of the Senate and done it in a very, very controlled fashion. So I understand why Democrats hate him, why Trump would hate him, other than the fact that he didn't completely and totally fall over and kiss his ring. I don't know. And the attacks on on his wife, Mr. McConnell, Senator McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, it's like, wow, wow. I mean, where where is this kind of stuff coming from? And the, the Wall Street Journal is absolutely and totally correct. This is you've got an election coming up. And just like the special elections for Senate in Georgia after the 2020 election, Donald Trump could have been out there vigorously campaigning for these Republican candidates to make sure Republicans control the Senate. And instead, he continued this diatribe about the election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. He was a divisive force that cost the Republicans control of the Senate. And if he doesn't rein himself in, he might stop what could be a banner year for Republicans you know, from occurring. So you can appreciate what he did if you choose to do that. You can say, oh, I, I just I love this guy who doesn't take any crap. But the reality is the sooner he disappears from public life, the better it is going to be for Republicans, the better it's going to be for the country, the better it's going to be for political discourse. And this this stunt over the weekend was just the latest indicator of that. Well, I'm not surprised this happened, and I guess I'm not surprised at the reaction. Uh, the, the movie business is coming back slowly, but more and more people are going to theaters. Um, one of the, the movies that one of the big movies that was supposed to that opened up last weekend and it gotten all the, this buzz was maybe you've heard about it. It's a movie called Bros, and it was being billed as sort of the first gay rom com. And and I just I, I read a couple of the reviews of it and, it and it and essentially again you know everybody knows the romantic comedies this 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 was from a gay perspective two two guys hence hence bros and it's a romantic supposedly a romantic comedy apparently there's and I've only been told of this didn't see it there's one there's at least one maybe more scenes of kind of graphic sex that are in it okay so it, it was expected to open up and make like like $40 million. That's what they, they thought because it had all this marketing and it had all this buzz and stuff. And um, it opened over the weekend $5 bucks. So it, it's, they, they're talking about it being a disastrous, you know, opening 
opening day. They thought that this was going to be successful and they thought it would hit on something. And now, I mean, everybody's trying to figure out exactly, you know, what went wrong. One of one of the stars of this is explaining, at least in his opinion, why people just chose not to go to see it, saying that, well, he, he thinks it's it's homophobia that, that occurred. That That's that's why people, you know, they, they're homophobic, so they didn't want to see it. And, and I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe this just isn't people's cup of tea, and it doesn't make them homophobic, homophobic because, all right, that this isn't just something that, that appeals to them. And the, the idea of like going to the movie and some of these sex scenes, it just might not be their cup of tea. And, and this idea that it has to be because you're homophobic or something, that's why the movie bombs. And maybe the movie will come back and maybe lots of people will rush out and see it. I, I would say that you would think that when this movie was on the drawing boards, there had to be some people who understand, well, this is this might be a little bit controversial, but let, let's try this and, and we'll see. And I don't know if it's a good movie or not. All I know is that this idea that, well, it, the movie's failed, people don't like it, they're not going to see it, it must be because of homophobia. Maybe it's just because it's not the type of movie that they want to go see, period. When we come back, well, it's going to be an interesting 2 o'clock hour. We're going to be talking about gasoline. We're going to be talking about vinyl records. And we're going to be talking about abortion. How's that for an hour? Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. The news is up next. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. So, Mike Spalding, it's all about perspective. And um, I, guess, I guess it's one of these things about having a place in Florida that's just gone through a, a epic hurricane and come away with essentially no damage to it. You know, um, that, that puts me in a different perspective. So the little stuff doesn't doesn't frustrate me. I, it's, it is one of those kind of things that you say, okay, well, that's pretty good. Life is still pretty good because— I had this situation, so I was I was very proud of myself. I was going to get my flu shot and my COVID booster. Mm-hmm. So I went, uh, I'm going to name it, I, like Walgreens. They, they'd sent me this, no, that's where I get my prescriptions filled. So they sent me, hey, you know, you can get your COVID shots and you can get your flu things. I, okay, that's great. So I go on their website and I make the arrangements. And at 4.15 this afternoon, I was supposed to go into a, a Walgreens and I, I had this appointment. And last week, I did this about two weeks ago, so last week I got a confirmation, hey, this is your appointment, your schedule. I, I printed it out. I, I'm carrying it. And this morning, 10.15, I get this note saying, this is just a reminder, 4.15, you've got this and that, and just show up and bring this along. And then about 45 minutes ago, I get this note with no explanation saying, canceled, you know, rescheduled. And I'm, now in normal circumstances, I might be a little bit irritated, but I'm quite actually zen about this whole thing. Of every single Walgreens in Milwaukee County, Waukesha County, Washington, they, they, there's no, they couldn't just say, hey, Jeff, instead of going right here on uh, Capitol, you're going to be going to I, I do not 27th. know. All, all I know hmm. is I, I made I made the arrangements, that it pre- and, and actually, the Walgreens closest to me wasn't offering them, So it was, but it was okay. It was no big deal, 415, it was perfect. I actually told my wife, I said, look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to come directly home, just so, you know, if whatever you got going on, that's fine. I'm not going to be directly home. So I'm because I'm, I think I'll just go right there. I'll get there early. Maybe they can get me in. Well, that's all changed. So, Fran, if you're listening, I'm coming home on time today. The other annoying thing is when you're going to get ready to get a shot, that's not you, you, you psych yourself up for it. And then you're like, just kidding. You're going to have to schedule it again for another day where you know your arms are going to well, be in pain. And, you know, actually, and this big picture might work out fine because 
this this Thursday, I, I'm, I'm off Thursday. We're going to Las Vegas. Just my my wife and I, my brother and um, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. So we're just just for a couple of days. And I was thinking about, huh, you know, sometimes if if you have even a little bit of reaction, it kicks in a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, is that the smartest thing? But I'd gone ahead. I had made the arrangements. I had it all set. I was set to go. But now maybe it's just. It's I'll, I will go back and I will reschedule. But you know, under normal circumstances, it might have irritated me. But hey, you know, I'm very blessed. My place came through. <laughs> my place in Florida came through without being flooded out, which is more than hundreds of thousands of people can say. All about perspective. It's all about perspective, as are so many things. Which is an interesting segue to the story I want to talk about next, and it is breaking news. Mike just told you about it. Um, Northridge Mall. And I understand if you are new to this area, you have no clue what I talk about when I say Northridge. Northridge Mall is, okay, Brown Deer Road, and it starts like on 76th Street, and then it goes about 10 blocks west or whatever. Northridge Mall in the 80s. If you were a child that grew up here, you hung out, and you you grew up in the North Shore, or you grew up in Mequon, or Ozaki County, Southern Ozaki County, or northern part of Milwaukee County, you hung out at Northridge Mall. It was thriving. You had movie theaters, and you had restaurants, and you had major anchor stores. You had a Sears. You had a Boston store back when we had that. You had a J.C. Penney's. They had a Gimbel's back when they had Gimbel's. And there were all these different stores that were in the, the, the ring around that. And then on the other side of the street from Northridge Mall, there was a successful mall. And there were all these restaurants that were out there. And we there was a Captain Steak joint and People who are of a certain age will know that. And there was a Chi-Chi's, if you're a certain age, you'll remember that. And there were all these diff. There was an IHOP, and there was a Denny's. There might still be a Denny's there. And there was a Red Lobster. There was all these different restaurants. It was a thriving area. And then for a variety of reasons, it fell into, it went into sort of a death spiral that it never recovered from. And it's essentially been vacant for the last, you know, two decades. We have talked about in great detail the the owner's, um, I think, what do they call them? So Black Spruce, or which are, and, and their their idea was that they were going to take Northridge Mall, they were going to repurpose it, and they were going to turn it into an, an Asian trademark. Okay, and, and they had these these plans that looked really good, but the problem is they never did anything with them. And, and nowadays, giant indoor shopping malls, they just, they don't build them now. That, that that's just, they've completely and totally fallen out of favor. Just to get Northridge Mall back to a point where it might be, you might be able to start putting like shops and stuff in. It would take six million bucks, and and no, nobody's going to. You're just not going to invest that much money. And as we've talked about, and it's been well documented before. You know what's happened now is you have kids from the area that have been breaking in, and they've been setting part. They've been setting it on fire. You've had at least four fires. You've had uh, people that have been breaking in and stealing copper pipes and pretty much anything they can steal. It's been an eyesore. It is a safety hazard. The city has been trying to get this thing torn down. They've been wanting to raise it, R-A-Z-E, and they, they had a raise order, and then a court of appeals blocked them, sent it back to circuit court. Well, the development today is different Milwaukee County judge has now said enough is enough, ordering the owner of the former Northridge Mall to tear down the remaining buildings, says this is a public nuisance and it is a danger. Now, I have no doubt that the owners of the building are going to appeal this and try to fight it. But it seems to me that this newest order, based on all the circumstances, is on pretty solid legal ground, which should mean in the relatively near future, Northridge Mall, or what was Northridge Mall, is going to be leveled. All right, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What should go there? 
Now, I know there's some thought that they want to build a new youth prison, and the site for the youth prison is right now it's, it's a couple miles down the road um, off of 76th Street, um, between 70, uh, 76th Street, just a little bit north of Good Hope. That That's the area that's been proposed for the um, new youth prison. Um, I think, you know, some people think it might thrive. You might be able to, you know, return it and restore it for retail. Other people say, and I, I kind of fall into this category, that maybe light industrial is really the best purpose. But but you need to have something out there because what's been out there for the last 20 years has just absolutely killed that neighborhood and all the surrounding neighborhoods. Our number is 855-616-1620. It looks like the saga of Northridge Mall, at least this phase, is starting to come to an end. Hopefully it will be torn down sometime soon. Where do we go from here? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. One of our texters says, for people who don't know, what's the address of Northridge Mall? I have no idea what the address of Northridge Mall is. Northridge Mall is essentially, as I described it, imagine Brown Deer Road, and it kind of starts on Brown Deer and 76th Street, and then probably goes west to maybe like Brown Deer Road and 84th Street, and it goes to the north. That's that's what I think of. Never, I don't know what the address of Northridge Mall would be, but you um, you get it, the idea. Jeff, I did not hear in the report if the fines that have been placed on the owner and the back taxes were paid or collected from the silence regarding that, and there was no movement towards demolition or use that was not met. Yeah, my, okay, for, so for people to review the bidding here, what happened is— after the fires broke out, they had an emergency hearing. The judge in the case ordered the owners of the mall to immediately do undertake all these things, start removing debris, uh, essentially stop it, you know, take all sorts of steps to stop it from being broken into, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they did, to the surprise of no one, they did almost nothing. So the judge began holding them in contempt. I'm trying to think if it's like $2,500 a day or something. My understanding is that now the, those fines are in the neighborhood of like 90 grand, could be off. And the, the last I heard, the hearing is still going on. The judge is trying to decide um, essentially you know, what what to do with the, the contempt citations and, and what to do with the money. I haven't heard anything about back taxes. The owners of, of Northridge, people will say, well, how are they able to avoid, you know, having it foreclosed for failure to pay taxes? Well, what, what they did, which to me, I mean, I think evidence is a certain intent, what they ended up doing is they, they would not pay their taxes and they would fall behind and they'd fall behind and then they'd pay their taxes in order to stem a foreclosure action, and then they'd go through and repeat the same pattern. Bottom line is, it really does, it breaks my heart as to what has been allowed to happen to to that area. And I, I think, you know, I mean, Northridge was such a showpiece in its day. And like I say, I understand that the days of the giant you know, shopping malls, the where, where people go and hang out at, the fast times at Ridgemont High, those sort of things, those big indoor shopping malls, those those days are past. They, they, they just are. And and now when you're looking at, at shopping to the extent that you see it, it's it tends to be strip malls or 
maybe something like you, you've got the, at Bayshore, Bayshore Town Center, or what they're doing out at Five Corners or things like that. Um, so you've got some of those things that are going on. So I, I, but I don't think, I don't think the future of Northridge is shopping, but I, I do think once you get that torn down, you're going to have at least an opportunity to try to bring something into an area that very, very badly needs it. Let's talk to Jason. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I lived in Brown Deer like 25 years ago and saw it just, I think it was right before that TGI Fridays incident happened, and yeah. everything just slowly just disappeared. And, and now it's, I mean, you live on the North Shore. It's just depressing as all get out when you hit about 107th Street and start heading east. Oh, yeah. There is nothing there. Everything's boarded up, and it's, I don't right. know what to do with it. The only thing over there that can sustain is Menards. And after that, it's there's nothing on Brown Deer Road. It, yeah. It's just, it's really sad. Yeah, it is. And especially if you remember, like you're talking about, you kind of remember the heyday when there was all those stores there. Yeah, I just, I don't, I personally don't think the future is is retail. I, I do think, you know, maybe some mixed-use development, or, or like I said, I think light industrial. I think it's it's still, I mean, it's got... It's situated well, you know. You, you're you got you're relatively close to you know freeway access and things like that. There's lots of space out there. I think there's things that you can do if you're creative with it outside of retail. But they got to start doing something. And, and as soon as you, if you can get some light industrial or something in there, maybe you will have some restaurants and gas stations that pop up there. But you're right; it's pretty depressing right now. Yeah, no, I agree. The kitty prison, I don't. I don't know my thoughts on that just because that is a stone stroll from Mequon, Menominee Falls. You know, nobody's going to be happy with, with that going next to them, but right. it's got to go somewhere. Right. No, so, yeah, no, thanks. Right. For, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the youth prison right now is scheduled for, like I say, a few miles south. Um, if you would take 76th Street, you go south a few miles and then a couple miles north of uh, of Good Hope. It, it's an area where I think it's an old DMV uh, with like testing thing or something like that. But um, bottom line is it's one of these things that it, it's going to, it is going to happen. It's sooner or later. And, and candidly that, that mall should have been torn down a decade ago. We are finally moving closer to that. And that is good for the community. So very glad to have you with us. All right. I, I understand that this might be controversial, but but maybe not. If you live in the, the essentially the seven counties or around Milwaukee, you are subject to having your car emission tested every two years when when it comes up for registration. Now it used to be it used to be that they had. It, state the state ran emission testing, and if you remember, there used to be a couple like big emission tests, testing places where they had six or seven bays. The one that I always used to go to was um, right off the freeway, right by where you would go down into the Potawatomi Casino. They, they had a big emission testing thing there, but they had them all over, and you'd get your notice, and you'd pull up, and you'd go, and you get your emission test, and once you got the license renew, renewal form, and then you know they they do it, and you drive off. Well, we don't do that anymore. The state DMV doesn't run them anymore. What they do is they contract with private garages, service stations, etc., to do it. And the garages do this because they do it as loss leaders. They get paid like five bucks a car. It, it's it's not worth. It doesn't cost you anything. But in the, the garages, 
It's not like they make any money at doing it, but I think what they hope is that you're going to come in for your mission testing thing, and then maybe you'll come back and get your oil changed, or, or if, you, if you have mechanical problems. So they do it as a loss leader. But the problem is, unlike with these, when they had the big DMV centers, sometimes it's kind of tough to find them, the, the, the different emission testing things that are out there. So I, I've got one of my cars due. I, I need <clears throat> the registration is November, so I have time. Thing comes in the mail on Saturday. So I want to kind of take care of this today. So within a couple miles of where I live, there is one, count them one, one service station garage that, that does the emission testing. Okay, well, it, it doesn't have to be done, but because I'm this guy that likes to like check things off the list, I say, okay, before I come into work today, I'll, I'll drive out and I'll, I'll get the emission testing thing. <laughs> so I go out to the one thing, and there's the line to get in, there's nine cars in line waiting for the emission testing thing, and it's and they only have one bay to do it. And, and I get it; that's not their principal business. And it's taking. Well, I say, I mean, I I got in the line, and the line's not moving too quick. It takes them five to ten minutes by the time they get the car in, get all the stuff hooked up, get the results printed out, move you on. It's about ten minutes of process, and I'm kind of looking at my watch, going, hmm. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it to work if I wait in, in this line. Now, again, there's not an urgency to do this, but it, there's not a lot of, of choices. So I'll, I'll go back tomorrow, I'll go back Wednesday, or I'll go back Thursday or when, whenever and, and try to get in it. But it's really got me thinking, though, about the need to have to do this in our seven counties around here. And I was doing some research on the number of failures— we're going to pick it up right there. And my question is going to be, is it time for people with late model cars to just drop the emission testing? Stick around. We will discuss that. Okay, we kind of touched a nerve on this emission testing thing. All right, there, there's, there are only seven counties in Milwaukee that are subject, in, in Wisconsin, that are subject to this requirement that your cars be emission tested. Um, every two years when the renewal comes up, Kenosha, Milwaukee, Ozaki, Racine, Sheboygan, Washington, Waukesha. So it's just that, that area. Um, the way the rules work is that if you have a car that is 1996 or newer, you have to go in every other year when the re- re- vehicle um, renewal comes up. Okay. And there's not really that many places that are around that, that do it. Now that the DMV has gotten out of the business of doing this, and and a lot of times there's lines and stuff because the, the places, they, they get reimbursed almost nothing. So, I mean, I, I understand they do it as loss leaders to try to get you in for stuff like that. Okay, but it underscores the question of why are, are we doing this? So after I pulled up this morning and at the place that's nearest me and there was a line of like nine cars in line and it was like, okay, I don't have an hour and a half to wait for this. I'll come back some other day. I, I really got into, my question was, no, why why are we doing this? And and I mean I appreciate look, I, I love the planet, right? And I appreciate that we don't want pollution out there. I don't know about you. My car, in all the years I've owned cars, I've never failed an emission test because I I, I don't I'm not driving twenty year old cars as a general rule. And I understand there's some people that do. So I, I started looking into this and made a couple phone calls this morning. In, in Wisconsin the the failure rate. I was curious about just in general of the cars that that go in for emission testing. What is what is the overall failure rate? 
And I was told, well, somewhere south of 5%. It, it kind of varies, and it's tough to get the numbers, but somewhere south of 5%, meaning 95 out of 100 of the cars that go in to get the emission test are going to pass. So then my follow-up question was, okay, of that, that 5% of the, of the 100%, what percentage of those cars that fail are cars that are, say, earlier than 2005? Or, or 2010. These are cars that are that are they're at least 15 years old or, or maybe more. And the response I got was almost all of them. So, uh, for all intents and purposes, if you are driving, and there might be some exceptions there, but for all intents and purposes, if you are driving a vehicle 2010 or newer, statistically, unless you've got a real problem with this, you're not going to fail that test. You're, you're, you're not going to you're not going to fail that test. So my question is, why are we jumping through all these hoops, and and why are we doing this? And and if you wanted to keep emission testing in place, shouldn't we be asking a question about okay, where are the failure rates here? And and if it turns out that it's only a very small percentage, and by the way, there's several states that are doing away with emission testing to begin with. But but if if it's only a small percentage, okay, you can argue is five percent enough to impose this inconvenience on all these people, all of us who are renewing our cars in these counties. But but shouldn't we ask that other question saying, okay, where are the, the statistics for the failure rate? And if it turns out that less than 1% of the failures, say, are cars that are, are within 15 years, right? my question is, what, why are we making people go in for that? 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage talk and, and test line. I, text line. I, I just, I mean, I raised this question. I know nobody asks these sort of things, and, and, and I understand, well, you know, we, we want to control emissions. Okay, I get it. I, I think that that's a notable thing. But if people that are driving cars made in 2010, for example, and newer, if, if statistically almost none of those vehicles are failing tests, all right, then, then why are we making people jump through those hoops? Don't we need to target this? Jeff, the emissions testing should end for newer cars. We have a 2017 and a 2021. We live in Waukesha County, four miles from Jefferson County, where they don't do testing. Also, it's impossible to leave a car at a vacation home in another state with Wisconsin plates. Jeff, you nailed it right on the head. Emissions testing is a joke and a pain. You can barely find a place that does it, and they're not happy about doing it. It's unnecessary to begin with. Well, I, I guess I'm I'm out there challenging the notion, is it in fact necessary? Or are we just doing this because it's virtue signaling and, hey, we, we want to control pollution and we want to control emissions in southeast Wisconsin? Okay, I, I understand that. That is a noble goal. No problem with that. But— but are we really inconveniencing people? And it is an inconvenience. And are we accomplishing anything? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Chris. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? So I think it uh, it's pretty much uh, obsolete at this point. Um, I had a random summer job in 2006 after high school testing emissions on cars, and really the main thing uh, that failed was people's gas cap. You know, uh, before 2002, you'd have to run it on the dynamometer, um, which is where you would actually put the cone behind uh, the muffler, um, and usually that wouldn't even fail for the older cars. The main thing that was failing was the gas right. cap, and boy, were people upset. 
when they had to go out and buy a new gas cap when their car was only one year old. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the case. No, thanks. For, right. And I, I guess. Th- right. That that's the, the thing. It, it could be the gas cap. But again, I, I all I'm saying is when I'm talking to people I'm saying, OK, of of the cars that fail where you have even the defective gas cap, I would be where is the percentage of these cars? I mean, is it happening on newer cars? And I think statistically, you're going to see that there's almost none of those. Jeff, the test is based on the county your car is kept in. I haven't gone to an emission test on my cars in over 20 years. I live in Milwaukee, but on the form, I put that the county my car is kept in is Dane County. Um, okay, well, you know, that's that's uh, that's it. Jeff, emissions testing negatively impacts the poor. They're the ones who are driving old cars and unable to pay shops to fix emission-related codes. Well, I, I, I don't know. If, if, if your car fails the emission test because it's got a defective gas cap, and one of our textures says, well, my wife's 2018 did. Oh, okay, that, that, that's fine. I don't have a problem with requiring it being fixed. I'm just suggesting that only a very, very small number of cars fail to begin with, and that the majority of those cars that fail are not cars within the last X number of years. So does it make any sense statistically, for example, if, if the Failure rate is less than 1%, for the sake of argument, for cars that are 2010 and newer. Why are people required to go in and get that? Maybe if we're going to do it, shouldn't we focus on where are the cars that are most likely to fail? Even if you accept the idea that a failure rate of 5% or maybe less, I think you can make a strong argument that it's not even that, that that's not even enough to justify all the inconvenience, that you're really not accomplishing that much. You're not getting that many pollutants out of the air by that small number of cars that are failing. But if the majority of those cars that are failing are 2010 or or earlier, or 2005 or earlier, okay, why is everybody else being required to do it? Um, I'm sorry, who's on line two? Patricia on line two. Patricia, good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think? Well... Well, I think there there's a couple of options. I mean, it's like they either need to stretch it to every five years because, you know, and then obviously you're exempt. If you have a new car, you're exempt for the first five years. Or right. um, they should make all of the state do it because a lot of people, but if you'll find out more failures if you find out a lot of people are registering their vehicles out of county, out of the county that they're mm-hmm. either out of state or they're registering out of one of the five, seven counties. Um, the other thing, you know, it's like vehicles have changed, you know, our mufflers don't fall apart as as often as, I mean, it's like I've had cars for 10 years and never had a problem with a muffler. Right. And that was usually the big reason when you think back. Yeah. No. With why, with, you know, vehicles are much easier maintained, you know, last longer, heck, engines last longer. Right. Right. And the the tech, you're right. The technology is just much, much better. No, you're right. I mean, thanks for the call. I, I see, I guess, right, if, if if you felt the need to do this, okay, maybe maybe extending it to five years or, or something like that. But again, I still, I, I think you, you need to make this data-driven. And that's, that, that is my point. Instead of just simply saying, okay, we're going to do this because we've always done this, et cetera, let, let's figure out what we're really trying to accomplish. And by, by making everybody that owns a car that's made since 2010 
go in and have it tested and go through the hassle, and it is a hassle. I mean, look, is this a first-world problem? Yeah, okay, but it's an inconvenience to have to do that, and if it's not accomplish anything, look, my car is going to pay. My car is, is maintained. It's serviced. It's going to pass. The cars that were in line in front of when I before I bailed on the line, they, they were they all looked like they were relatively newer cars. My, my guess is they're they're going to pass as well. It would be a shock if one of these didn't. So you know why are we making everybody jump through the, these hoops and inconveniencing again the, the people that, that that offer these as well? It's just I, I think it's something that's been outmoded, and you need to take a new look at this and figure out why is it that we're doing it. Okay, we want to make the planet better. We want to cut emissions. But is this really the way to do it? Maybe what we need to do is try to figure out a way if if it is the older cars that are contributing to the problem, well, maybe we need to figure out, maybe they should have to be tested every year. I, I don't know. I, I mean, but if that's where the problem is, maybe we need to isolate on that instead of making people, um, and I think right now it's, it's you get it. You have to start getting your car emission tested after its third year. You get two, like a two-year thing, and then when it comes up for the third year. I mean, seriously, how many cars that are 2020 models are failing emissions tests? My guess is almost none. Jeff, I don't know if you know this, but they do investigate people that claim loopholes to get around emission testing. I have two residences in Wisconsin prior to retirement. My primary home is in Waukesha. I also have a little place in Green Lake County. Split my time about 50-50, but I registered my vehicles to my home in Green Lake. Well, guess what? I got a letter from the state of Wisconsin investigator that said that my automobile was seen in Waukesha, parked in my driveway. And uh, it goes on. It, It is interesting. Huh. I'm glad they're... It is sort of funny that with all the stuff and the crime going on in the state of Wisconsin that we're concentrating on worrying whether this guy has his play, has his car registered in Waukesha or in his driveway at Green Lake. But I but again, I, I, I digress on, um, you know, this. Jeff, uh, here's my take on it. I'm an authorized emissions test center in Milwaukee County. We currently test anywhere between 20 and 40 cars per day. Very low percentage of failures, definitely under 5%. Um, You know, we've talked to Opus, which is the contractor for the state, and we get nowhere. I agree we shouldn't do testing anymore. I think it's important Madison uh, should be testing or do the whole state. By the way, you said we get $5. We only get $2 a test. You know, it's just like you know, it's two dollars a test. That that's that's and again the so when when you find these places that are doing these different things, you you do want to thank them for offering the convenience because it, they're they're not making any money on it. Trust me, it's it's more of a pain in the butt to do it, but they're doing it again because they hope that you might go to you know you you might get your oil changed if it's like one of those quickie oil change places, and they also do the emission testing thing. They're hoping that you might get your oil changed as well let's take advantage of the the services um but i mean i think that the numbers are just absolutely you know staggering here's an interesting text too that does raise this point instead of emissions i would much rather see true safety inspections for roadworthiness brakes ball tires improper working lights or excessively damaged cars driving on the road now that that would actually make a little bit you know a little bit more sense perhaps um that uh, it's a little bit more sense if we're actually trying to promote safety and stuff. And again, I'm also getting a couple texts. Oh, this is just another one of you evil Republicans. You hate the environment. No, it's it's not that at all. 
I'm just saying that this idea that we have 98% of the people who have to go through something that is an inconvenience that accomplishes nothing. Your car is going to pass the test. So this is just an exercise in futility and it's inconvenience for the very, very small percentage of cars that you might actually catch. It, It doesn't make any sense. But even if you want to do emission testing, fine, let's figure out where the greatest percentage is. And if statistically almost no cars made, you know, new cars within the last 10 years fail, why are you making everybody go through it? It just doesn't make any sense at all. A question I think maybe that we can fairly ask for some of our elected officials in Washington and in Madison. 